I love throughout my entire career to buy a car in front of another hustler, pay too much money for it, bring it to the block. They're standing there watching and I blow 12, 1500. I love it. I love it. You know why? The message you're giving your competitor is this cat is nuts. That's how we chase anybody out of a stop that we want to be in, right? You just do crazy things. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Robert Hollinshead is founder of RHA Auto Sales, one of the largest vehicle wholesalers to ever exist with over $45 billion of used cars sold at auctions. It doesn't end there. He has also founded and exited two software companies, one of which is called AccuTrade and was sold to cars.com. He is a fascinating human with an obsessive attention to detail. Some quick context. You will hear some industry terms in this episode, one of which is called GALVs. For those that don't know, you can think of GALVs as a book that dealers used to use to value cars, similar to, say, a Kelly Blue Book for consumers. But before we dive into the show, theft is plaguing dealerships nationwide, losing car keys is an unneeded cost, and searching for keys can lead to bottlenecks in the sales process. Keeper Systems has the solution for dealers. The Keeper MX is the number one key control solution in the auto industry, handling millions of transactions per day. It features a 16-gauge steel cabinet with a built-in camera and a puck lock for additional safety, along with many other features so that dealers can know who took a key, when, and why. Keeper Systems has been in the auto industry for over 40 years and is at over 12,000 dealerships, offering exclusive key control for 6 out of 10 biggest automotive groups in the world. They have a wide range of products that fit the needs of franchise dealers, independent dealers, and even the smallest pre-owned lots. New customers can take advantage of my partnership with Keeper Systems right now to receive an exclusive discount. All you need to do is visit KeeperSystems.com, click on the Car Dealership Guy link, and fill out the form to receive 25% off your first key machine purchase. Or if you prefer to call, just mention Car Dealership Guy to receive your discount. KeeperSystems.com, K-E-Y-P-E-R Systems.com. All right, I'm fired up for you to listen to this episode. Here's my conversation with Robert Hollinson. All views of Car Dealership Guy and guests on this podcast are solely their opinions. None of the views expressed should be treated as financial advice. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, we got the big dog, Bobby Hollinson on the pod. Bob, welcome. How you doing, guys? I think the conversation we had this morning, that could have been a podcast on its own. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I put together a list of topics, subjects, things that I thought would be interesting, but the reality is... You know, I don't know why I have a feeling like this conversation will flow organically and we'll, you know, we'll hit on a lot of different topics. Uh, so I think we'll just, you know, we can just kick it off that way. Um, just kick out of rabbit holes. I'm, I'm famous for going down rabbit holes, brother. <laughs> That's why we you know we make sure everything gets produced to get people what they want. So Bob, awesome. I want to go, I want to start early on for a second, right? Before we get into the modern day nitty gritty, uh, you know, before I was born, right? You, when did you got into wholesaling in the seventies? Is that right? Yeah, I actually, yeah. Uh, I joined the Marine Corps when I was 16 years old uh, in 1972. And uh, when I got out of the Marine Corps, I was married with two kids when I was 19. And uh, actually, reality set in. And uh, I got a job selling cars. It's the only job I ever had in my life, actually. It was short-lived, but uh, I took a job selling cars and um, I was introduced to the uh, retail business, right? It did really well. We did a lot of things that probably you weren't supposed to do, selling cars on Sundays and the blue laws and all the rest of it. So we got, uh, you know, I started doing pretty good in that. But immediately I was fascinated with where the trades were going. And there was a number of wholesalers that were walking in the door, buying cars, going in and visiting the manager, closing the door when they visit the manager, putting a little something in the Galv's book every time. I noticed that immediately where the size of the Galvs book. In those days, the only book that existed was Galvs. If anybody used a different book, you know, they obviously had no idea what they were doing. And a hundred dollar bill fit perfectly in a Galvs book. And as a little kid, that's like, uh, you know, very green, barely shaving at that moment. I'm trying to understand what's happening. We just traded a Dodge Dart. It shot out the back door 10 minutes after it got traded. I might even had a customer for that car, right? But it disappeared. So when I start paying attention to where these cars are going and how quickly they're coming in, somebody had to be getting um, some intelligence saying the car was getting traded and get here quick before anybody else gets here. And the next thing you know, the car disappears. Now, when you watch where the car is going, it's going across the street and uh, it's getting sold instantaneously. Now, why would somebody else do that? So as I'm watching this happen, you know, and I ask more questions and I'm paying attention, 
it started to become clear to me that weird things were happening with trade-ins, right? And as a result, being a little more curious, I started actually trading cars, let's say on the side, where a customer has a car and the price seemed way too low, where I actually started buying the cars uh, that were going to get traded and wholesaled for way less money than they were worth. And, um, you know, took them home, cleaned them, put them in the inquiry or the bulletin at that time and started making money. That led to how do we turn this into a business? That led to obviously going to auctions and watching how that process worked. And that led to actually buying cars out of the newspaper. So, so tell me more about that. Tell me about buying cars out of the newspaper. You hinted at an edge earlier this morning, and I yeah, think that I want yeah. to talk about it. Go ahead. Yeah. So, so the edge was in those days, cars were, you know, three, four, five, six, seven thousand dollars $7,000. And when you walk into dealerships and you basically got the cold shoulder because you didn't have a manager on a schmear, there was only one alternative, and that is to actually buy cars directly from a consumer. And when you are looking at 10 or 12 newspapers a day from Allentown to Wilmington, Delaware, Camden, New Jersey, the New Jer the, the Philadelphia papers, um, you, you basically would put yourself in a position where there was 15 other wholesalers that were running around door to door trying to buy cars. So my alternative to, what, to that was going to the editor of, let's say, the bulletin and actually making a little deal where I got the ads prior to being prior to the paper mm -hmm. being printed. You were from running the market. Yeah. So in other words, we were actually getting to the cars before they were in the newspaper. And, you know, we quickly developed a methodology of carrying, you know, 30 or 40 G's in cash in your pocket. So you'd have enough money to go out for the day. And we started to use, a, I think, a very effective method, uh, you know, knocking on the door where the Sunbird or the Nova was sitting and having the money in your top pocket hanging out. So it's pretty clear that you were definitely a buyer. You understand? And using a story that, you know, I'm an exporter and I, you know, I'm going to buy 10 cars today. One of them could be yours, right? So if you're asking 3200 and, you know, I'll happily buy your car this second, I got the cash with me, as you can see, right? We'll pay you 2700 I would say my success rate was probably in the high 90s where first they'd ask the question, well, how do you know my car is for sale? It's not even in paper yet. And I said, well, I don't know. It's just found out and here I am and I'm going to buy your car today. If I don't buy yours, I typically have the paper circled with 12 other cars to let them know that if they don't take my money, I'm just going to go buy somebody else's car. And that method worked really well. Now, what that really did was give us option, the ability to buy not a lot of cars, but 10, 20, 30 cars a week that when you actually got those cars ready and brought them to the auction, they were actually what you would call like pretty good cars because you weren't buying adverse selection trade-ins. You're buying cars that you selected out of the paper. So when you get to the block, you you have what we would call tits-up cars, right? In other words, cars that really got reason why you would create a little bit of anxiety in an auction lane because you got stuff that people actually want. Explain to me how all these years, all this wholesaling, how did you never get into retail? Well, that's a question that, you know, it's funny that you're asking that question, but in my very short experience in the retail business, in those days, there were no computers. So credit apps actually were filled out by a salesperson. So you sat eyeball to eyeball with a person that's actually looking for credit, right? So you'd sit there with whatever bank you're using, American Bank, PSFS, Provident Bank, whatever, and you'd fill out the app. And in the upper left-hand corner of those apps was a little box. So you put in, you know, they work at the Reading Railroad. They've been there 32 years. They live at the 17th and Erie, whatever, right? And, you know, all the information. But this is probably a weird thing to say, and I probably shouldn't bring the topic up. But unfortunately, it's an absolute fact. And it really had a lot to do with why I never really got in the retail business. There was a little box up in the upper left-hand corner of the credit app that was blank. And it was for the salesperson to put a number in that in that box. And that number was like a one or a two. A one got 6% interest. A two got 11.08 interest. What that to me was, was something that it just didn't make any sense, being a naive goy. In other words, uh, I couldn't understand why or how anybody would actually 
use an identifier to actually, you know, make them put an individual in a circumstance where they're going to pay a different interest rate because of what you're looking at, right? Who that person happens to be. Uh, what it really is, it was institutional racism in lending. Institutional, unquestioned or unquestionable racism in lending. Didn't matter what the person's job is, they got a different interest rate. And it was based on who you, the salesperson was looking at. So when you put that app in the deal jacket and you called it into the bank, that's that's what determined the interest rate the person was getting. Now, that being said, here, here's where it really gets very weird. So this is 70s. You know, the practice, I think, continued into the early 80s. You know what happened in the early 80s? It's called computers. So in other words, when there's computers, it was really weird. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying this is fact. The coincidence of it is a little bit beyond what I'd say could be coincidental. Banks started to merge and get sold and get bought and so forth because computers are now being used. And in other words, there has to be some way to get rid of evidence of any kind of institutional lending practice that would not be really good for somebody to be able to pull up on a computer, right? And that means all of those tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of apps It'd be very difficult. There is no plausible deniability that that occurred. When a bank gets sold to another bank and now everything's computerized, the idea that that, that record keeping disappears, I think it makes it kind of plausible as to why all of these things were happening at that period of time. Times have changed. Feels like it was a wild west back then. It's It was more than a wild west because that also in the 70s and 80s, early 80s for sure, before computers, before computers. So in 1984, when mileage certificates became like a, a regular thing and computers were actually able to track cars, obviously speedometers were changed on a regular basis, right? So that's anybody that denies that just isn't, it just, they just aren't facing the facts of life, right? It, because, or they were completely naive, but that was a, a normal practice where cars went into the time machine. You see what I'm saying to you? Uh, that, that was perfectly normal. Actually, you know, lease companies would leave titles open knowing that, a car is going to change its age, you know, its chronological mileage age, uh, because uh, that's what happened in the car business. Nobody would admit to it. Nobody would agree to it. But auctions all know it as well. They absolutely know it. You follow me? Everybody know it. That changed in the early to mid-80s when computers became a way of doing business. And as a result, it disappeared. By 1985 or 86, I would say, that completely came to a halt where it never happens at this point. There's been a couple little instances here and there with knuckleheads that, you know, you hear about once in a while, but it's just not the case. What that really means is we went from absolutely no transparency and we've moved over the five, six decades I've been in the car business into absolute transparency. In other words, everything is transparent. And so we've actually lived through that entire evolution of murky things into a point where everybody knows everything. You started this business so long ago and you've been able to adapt. I think that's what is so unique about you. So I'm curious, like, how have you done it? Have you just been so in tune and you know, you've had your fingers on the pulse and you see where the industry's been heading and you've sort of kept steering that direction? Or what yeah. has it been for you that's allowed you to embrace transparency and capitalize yeah. on it? Yeah. So so that's an interesting point. So I think I'm a little weird in the sense that when people who are making their living changing speedometers didn't, they were unable to convert to, you know, the next part of the evolution. I think in my particular case, I've always been a student, not just of the industry, not just of people, not just of how things actually transpire, but incorporating it in our business, not just today with our bricks and mortar business, buying and selling, you know, a thousand cars every other week. In other words, in the technology that we build. So as a student and as a participant, we actually, I think, see things a little bit differently, almost in an altruistic standpoint, where we understand from an empathetic standpoint as well, what the person you're dealing with, the person you're buying a car from it in the dealership, what's his circumstances? How do we actually make it easy for them to do business with us? How do they trust us? How do they make sure that if they do something, we're there to help them? never get in a bad position, vice versa. It's same thing when we go to an auction block, um, you know, 2,500 Fridays in a row, right? How do we enable people that are actually strangers coming from all over the world 
to actually go and buy cars in an auction lane, as you say, in complete and absolute chaos. How do we take that chaos and bring it to a point where people can feel safe, where they can feel confident, where they don't have fear? And the only way that can be done is if you look at things from the other person's perspective, where you make it easy for the other person to do business without having any fear of getting hammered, right? Because we don't follow the rules and regulations. We go way beyond the rules and regulations. Where I'm willing to listen to someone's complaint that he didn't think and it wasn't his fault. And can I please let him out of the car? We're not pointing the rule books as to why he's not allowed to get out of the car. We're saying without any question or doubt, you ain't allowed to have the car because you don't want it. Now, you know, that actually is something that I've done since I started in the, uh, the early days. So uh, well, what is that? What is that secret sauce for you? The secret sauce is putting skin in the game. It's helping people make it easy for them to have confidence to do business with you, whether you're a buyer or a seller. I'm going to back up just one second because this is kind of an important point. When we first started bringing a little bit of volume to auctions, it was in Hatfield, Pennsylvania, which is today's Mannheim, Philadelphia. It went from, you know, uh, a little tiny two-lane auction, which was a Chrysler sale. It was really only a Chrysler sale when Mort Gallup bought it from Al Bayless. And it, we turned it into a consigner sale simultaneously. What that means is they had nothing but Chrysler cars there, but we started buying cars down south in South Carolina, North Carolina, buying Chrysler product and bringing enough Chrysler product to Hatfield, Pennsylvania, to the Chrysler sale to actually sell cars as consigners. What we did was we bought cars that actually were different than the rental cars that were going through. But you actually had critical mass of buyers because all Chrysler dealers would be in those two little tiny Mickey Mouse lanes. One lane would be the Chrysler sale. The other lane would be our consigned cars, all Chryslers. Now, what you would have there is critical mass of buyers. Once you brought critical mass of cars that match what those buyers want, um, we start to learn about how a marketplace is created to get irrational money for a particular category of car. If you have a, let's call it an audience that's prepared to buy as many cars as you have, and there's other competitors in that same audience that are friends, but they're not friends because they're competitors. And when one bids, the other one bids, the other one bids, we create a, a, a testosterone driven marketplace. And it's based in matching the market with the merchandise. We're not bringing Ford diesel trucks there. We're bringing Chrysler K cars and town and countries and, and Chrysler Imperials, you see, where they can't go anyplace else to find them in, in sufficient quantity that you wind up getting irrational money for those cars. If you were to go out on the street and sell them hand-to-hand combat to another dealer and you ask them, let's say, a number, 22000 mm-hmm. for a car, you'd never get that money. But in an aggregated, concentrated marketplace... Mm-hmm. You could get twenty three, four, or five thousand for that car. You see what I'm saying? I think it's incredible, and I've experienced it being there. And you see who's not disciplined and who's you know overextending themselves on that purchase. But where my mind goes right away is like with what you just said, and the auctions going all online and Mannheim being online. What has that done to your margins? Has that completely hurt margins? So just think about this, and I want you to do this. If you look at any auction with random sellers, right? And people who aren't aware of critical mass alignment, what it actually does for Mm -hmm. the person that, or the the group of people that you're selling cars to, you're going to see complete random alignment of cars in a lane. You're going to look at any lane. There's a 187,000 mile car sitting next to a 2000 mile car, a car with a bad car fax, a car with, so in other words, complete scrambled eggs. I've tried to explain this a thousand times to people that run auctions and Mm -hmm. they're not in skin in the game players. So they really don't pay attention to what we're saying. Now, the people who have paid attention using our software that forces critical mass alignment have become very successful, extraordinarily successful, actually. When you look at a lane that actually is laid out in critical mass, you're going to see cars that are similar. So buyers that come to those lanes give you the respect to showing up in those lanes, whether it's in lane or virtual, Mm -hmm. they're going to see 65 cars that match what they would want to buy. We're not confusing them with a Volkswagen convertible and a Mercedes, you know, GLK, right? So all you have to do is thinking about once you have them in your lane, once they turned on to your channel, how do we keep them there 
couple different things happen when they stay there. They watch their competitors bidding on cars. That means we've let them in the water. It's the water's warm. It's okay. Your other guys are doing it. Therefore, it's social good. proof. Yeah. Social Pro proof. validation of activity. That's a human mm -hmm. nature thing, right? So when I say I'm a student, it's, when you think about habitual activity, consistent habitual activity, what do people do on a particular day? Because they actually get Pavlovian response. In other words, the sugar, saliva, right? So in other words, they come to the lane, they're getting cars. They're actually watching cars that are getting sold that they may not be the best end user for, but they feel good about being there. So when it's their turn to bid, it's not like they're jumping in ice cold, rock filled water. We've already run through the briar patch and we're actually enabling you if you're a five or a 10 or a 20 car buyer to see everything you need to see in a really short period of time. So you're not wasting your time or effort. More importantly, everything has to get sold. In other words, you can't start that. Oh, uh, I need 300 more. I need 4,000 more. Once you start doing it, the first time those words come out of your mouth, it's understandable as a seller that if you're not able to sell, it's understandable. But you have just thrown ice cold water in your marketplace, in your marketplace and also into the auctions marketplace. See, because micro and macro are directly related, right? If you have lanes that actually sell 100%, very rare, there's only a couple of them in the nation to do that for cars that are 20, 30, 50, 80, 150,000 dollars, only a couple lanes in the country that can do that. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's, it, it becomes like a almost impossible to believe that other people don't understand it or see it. What do you think that tells the average dealer? Does it tell them like, hey, I might find a deal over here because well, anything's going to get sold? It's, it's all about Jerry Springer. You ever see Jerry Springer? Anything can happen, yeah. Daddy-O. You might get up and smack your mother in the mouth. Therefore, you're not changing channels. You're staying on just to see what kind of craziness oh, you're yeah. And here's where it goes. Watch. And I love throughout my entire career to buy a car in front of another hustler, pay too much money for it, bring it to the block. They're standing there watching. And I blow 12, 1500. I love it. I love it. You know why? The message you're giving your competitor is this cat is nuts. Oh, That's yeah. how we chase anybody out of a stop that we want to be in, right? You just do crazy things, right? It, because what that whole Jesus Christ, he's nuts, man. So who do you want to fight with? A smart guy or a nut? He's quitting the fight, brother. You understand? Mm -hmm. But when you ain't ready to quit the fight and you're coming back for more, right? That's a guy that's not a good idea to get in a ring with. You dig what I'm saying, Tim? 100%. Andrew? More importantly, to answer your question more specifically, if it's all about a casino as well as Jerry Springer, you walk in a casino in the background, ding, 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 boop, 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 boop. there's 9,000 people in the casino, but you hear the little thing <laughs> in the back. What's that telling you? Oh my God, holy Jesus, I could win. I could win. You got no shot at winning, but you heard somebody else win, therefore you could win. And therefore, when we sell cars too cheap, oh man, he's a dumbass. That, that car was cheap. I love it. And it's enabling two things to happen. Anybody to believe that they really could be a winner. They really could walk away from here. Holy Christ, I bought that car worth the candy. More importantly, they understand this is not softball. This is real. This is a cage fight with no gloves. Anything can happen. Therefore, you can't change channels. The average dealer's looking at 20 screens. You know, the average buyer, he already did all his homework. He's already done his proxy bids. Torture, torture, more torture. And then you get to the lane where you did your homework and somebody says, no, sir. What you did was you just you just put the fire out, right? And the probability of Pavlovian of returning to that lane to do the same thing because you ain't getting your little cube of sugar is mm -hmm. very low. Now, I'm using current day example. We've done this for six decades. What we learned in the beginning, critical mass alignment, selling straight through, what you wind up doing is getting more for cars that anyone else can get. And as a result, that makes you a more capable buyer to pay more for cars that you actually want to create your critical mass because some cars are going to lose money. And we really do lose on a lot of cars. The difference is when you add it all up, Buyers that do, I'm not bragging about this, but I think it's going to be difficult to find anybody to say that they don't like buying cars in our lanes but through the decades, that they have been screwed in some way because no fear. How do you get with no fear? How do you get to that point? So everybody buys everything, regardless of what anybody says, through their eyeballs. 
The better you can make a car more desirable, you're taking it up a level, two levels, three levels, and who you attract as your critical man as buyer changes entirely. The dealer that trades the car, it smells like a cat, whatever. It's One got second, though. Do you think that's still true in today's economy where oh. dealers are buying cars online? Do you think that's still the case? I mean, with these proxy bids and these computer buyers, like, is that still the case? One thing. Or is the car... So you're saying the car, the vehicle, the used car is not commoditized at this point, or better yet, maybe maybe you are saying it is commoditized, but you can still get more for that car. Like, where are you out on the spectrum here? Explain it. So the verbiage that is now becoming common, the commoditization of the VIN, if you read our writings from 1994 or five or eight, we were using the concept of commoditizing the VIN. What I meant by that was... Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you're talking about the purity of gold or, the, you know, the wheat or this or whatever, name any commodity. A car is a commodity. The problem is every single one of them is an individual thing. Mm -hmm. The software we built, actually, it, it, it extracts all of the details that enables a commodity's price, a guaranteed price to be put on that particular car. Mm -hmm. Now, what's, what's missing inside of that is who is capable of encountering the best end user for that VIN. This is where critical mass comes into play. This is where credibility comes into play. This is where trust comes into play. Mm -hmm. The exact same car sold by a individual as opposed to another individual, right? The same exact car that somebody spends three or five or $800 to recondition to make the visual different on that particular unit can change the actual value because you're changing who the best end user is for that car. You see what I'm I saying? I think I get it. This is okay. where it's really going to get weird because everybody uses certain software that says everybody's the best end user for every car. I think you know what I'm alluding to, right? And why would you wholesale a car when the next person is just going to do the same thing with it? It's the most fallacious concept in the history of the world. And I'm going to give you the example of this. If I've bought a million cars in my life, and let's just say with my own money and actually sold those cars, right? Who do you think we buy Lexuses from? Who do you think we buy Mercedes from? Who do you think we buy any brand of car from? We buy Lexuses from Lexus dealers. Why would that be? Aren't they the best end user for a Lexus? You know, they the fact flow. Is, they need cash flow. It's, it's cash flow. They have duplicates. And it might even interrupt the possibility of selling a new one because it's too late a model. And they, mm -hmm. they don't want to take away from their, you know, punching an RDR card because they got to sell the other car. And so another dealer would say, well, Jesus Christ, I mean, you could go, but you can't. And what happens is if they have to trade it for a price where they can make it attractive to be a useful car on the used car lot, they've under traded that car to the point where there's a better end user that could be two or three or five or $8,000 more than the brand specific dealer. It happens across the board. If you looked at our management system to see where we buy cars, we buy the Lexuses from Lexus dealers. We buy them mm -hmm. other places also, but we buy Toyotas from Toyota dealers. We buy Mercedes from Mercedes dealers. And when somebody says, well, you know, they'll never sell you that car. Here's the worst part of that story. The probability that the Mercedes dealer is the best end user on any Mercedes is almost zero. It's almost zero. It's very rare. If I sell 120 Mercedes this week on the auction block, we won't sell five of them to a Mercedes dealer, but every mm -hmm. one of them came from a Mercedes dealer. And that yeah. means the theory that whatever you trade, you should keep the retail is completely, utterly flawed. It has no relationship to the reality of the marketplace, to the commoditized marketplace. Our job as what for what we do is to take a car, bring it to the next level condition-wise, dent, scratch, tire, wheel, in other words, stink, whatever, and mm -hmm. then put it logically with 40, 50, 80 other cars that are similar to that so we don't have people changing channels on us. They're not mm -hmm. changing channels because we're showing them a Ford pickup truck, but it's a Mercedes lane. You want Mercedes, you're coming here because we got them and we're definitely going to sell them. You dig it? Mm -hmm. and what that does is once you've brought them into that market and you've brought them to the next level, the probability of us no sailing the car is right next to zero because Jerry Springer, you remember Jerry Springer, right, pal? Anything yeah. could happen here, Daddy-O. 
keeps them on the channel. We don't want them changing channels, going to a different lane, getting lost, forgetting about coming back to our lane. The idea is to keep them locked in and enable them to get whatever they're looking for. So I want to sum this up and then I want to talk about the next yep. step here, which is you taking yep. the software and licensing it to dealers. But yep. look, basically, this is how I view this, right? You build this incredible machine and along the way, you built an incredible brand. And initially, when you say the word commoditize, my brain said, well, that's against his interest because if you're going to commoditize the vehicle, you're going to be out of business because why would you be needed? I'll cash flow aside, but you've built a brand with clear value propositions around yourself, which is something that you know 99.9% of wholesalers don't have. And so you're actually building a moat around yourself and your business by making that vehicle more commoditized because guess what? If you as a dealer want to get a premium on your vehicle, you're the guy to go to for that. Well, that's that's partially correct. And I don't want to sign braggadocious about that. It's the very few people that actually get to the point where they can do the volume to actually enable critical mass to work, A. B, that would have the stupidity in their brain to be sure that you're building software that's going to definitely disable you from having a future which also becomes an invalid concept because who is actually going to be the check behind the offer? There has to be someone there. And if it's a Mercedes and it's not the Mercedes dealer, who is it? It's the commoditizer. It's Mm -hmm. the person that actually says, here's the check. I'll take that car. Any object is only worth what somebody's willing to pay on the barrel. Mm -hmm. And if in our case, we then take those cars and have you know the the casino esque will to put them in a market and absolutely let them all go. What then does that infer to our analysts that are putting the prices on the cars? We got skin in the game. We know where they came from. We know if it's cat or dog, and therefore, how do we set our prices going forward? That goes back to the question about gals. Our analysts are also car buyers. These analysts have skin in the game. And more importantly, they protect my skin in the game. When they yeah, see- I, I noticed that you call your team analysts, which I find, I find very interesting. As I was looking through your website, I didn't expect that, but I can see why you use the word analyst. Well, it, they're analysts because they also bifurcate as buyers. If a car comes in their category and they're wrong, they actually get an electrical shock to understand we got to modify. Could be a mileage adjustment, could be a a rebate on a new car that's changing the desirability of a car, right? We're seeing that right now with late model Mercedes, aren't we? 2023 C-Class, whatever, they're giving them away. They're stacked up at the dealership. They can't find a customer for them. So when we actually feel that, it's it's irrational to somebody, oh, that's not true. These electric cars, they're big. Well- until you actually write a check, and then until you can't lose ten or twelve or fifteen thousand dollars in that car, you don't actually understand what the value of that car is, right? How are you doing that though? How are you valuing electric cars right now? Like, like, is it different? Uh, are you finding it challenging? Them we buy them at Solomon. When somebody put them, uh, you know, some sort of a, a nut Hummer or EV, something with twenty-two thousand uh-huh. miles on it, and it's one hundred thirty-one thousand dollars, and I'm watching the car that we have on the auction block today in Dallas, and there's nobody bidding at one hundred twenty-three thousand. What do you think the price of that car did? What do you think the price of that proactively did on that particular car? We buy from 10 or 12, maybe 15 Audi dealers, right? So mm-hmm. when we see Audi dealers that got these cars coming in and they don't want them for any price, right? They don't want them for any price. They can't give a new one away, right? And uh, we can actually feel the desperation. But more importantly, when we got a car to list for 130000 we paid 78000 and can't get no bid at 60000 how we doing, friend? And then somebody's referring to a transaction that occurred three months ago in somebody mm-hmm. else's auction, right? But what are the challenges with the with uh, wholesaling EVs right now? Like, are you finding that oh, there's no, we buy, different? I'll buy any of them. I'll buy a thousand of them this morning, right now. I, I have no problem with that. Because well, what well, it, do you feel like you'll put a competitive market price on it? Hundred percent. We invite first in our tool. I don't think you've been on it. We give you an insurance policy number, and then we tell you what we assume that car could bring to a better end user. The insurance company, me, is not necessarily the best end user. So we're actually showing you proactively what we believe that car could bring if we find a better end user for that car. It won't be an e-tron and an Audi dealer. I can tell you that right now. They won't trump that number and keep it for themselves because they realize that car is not very hot in this particular market. And do you have, are there like sets of data 
that when it comes to electric vehicles and value them, whatever you know, call it. We don't have the, sets of it. We have mountains of it. So you got to no, but it. like when it comes to like the battery and stuff like that, oh, are you are you seeing I, any oh, challenges when it comes to that? Absolutely, and we're actually doing it with OBD where we can actually predict battery life, yeah. et cetera. Right? We're the only tool that actually has the ability for a, an appraiser to plug it in and have. When the you OBD. say we. Who are you referring to when you say, are you referring to I don't to like Accutrade? to say I because I hate to sound like a narcissistic pig. <laughs> We're referring to AccuTrade and other okay. sources of information and that we accumulate. In other words, longitudinally, right? So right. it's not something. So the same way our condition reports and our transaction data doesn't disappear the day we sold a car. No, that becomes longitudinal data, data that we refer to. Uh, in many different ways, it, it, so, in rub-off effect with similar cars, but it, when that same car comes back into the marketplace, we have data that nobody else has. One second, though. I, we haven't introduced AccuTrade yet at all. I want to formally introduce that. So I'm putting myself back in your shoes for a second, right? You mentioned buying gals, the book, you know, doing these transactions. Now you are you're trading these cars. You're you know selling thousand, let's say thousand plus cars a week at auction. You have these book values that you're consistently spitting out. The next thing in this evolution is you say, hey, I can license this to other dealers who can then leverage my data to buy cars. And by the way, I can also use it as a mechanism to acquire more leads and more cars for myself because I will give these dealers, every other dealer in the country that uses this platform, a guaranteed bid on the car they're trading in. So guess what? If they don't want it, I'll take it and I'll sell it. Right. So that's huge. Right. You're putting skin in the game. So explain to me how you got from gals, from valuing the cars and to actually licensing this to dealers and inventing AccuTrade, which is a company so, that you found. So there's a, there's a few modifications to what you just said. One, we are not the guarantor that wants to buy the dealer's car. What we are doing is giving the dealer the information altruistically. So they actually have an insurance policy to actually make a transaction on. So I, I'm just going to go back into your experience at an auction. Mm-hmm. How, how many times have you been to an auction? Too many, many times. <laughs> okay. You wait for a car to come in. And you got a friend standing next to you. How often have you heard the banter back and forth? Hey, uh, I'm getting ready to bid on this. What do you think that's worth? You ever hear that before? How many hundreds of, of thousands is that? Hey, uh, I just bought this car showing a guy a slip. What do you think this is? You think I paid too much for it? What are you doing right there, brother? You're co-validating activity. We've taken our experience at all auctions of hundreds of thousands of conversations with people. Uh, you think I paid too much for this car? Should I put yeah. this car in arm and try to get out of it? Okay. We've yeah, taken you're the psychics. You don't have to talk to nobody. You already got our information and what we believe, it, along with, of course, we built into the tool, not just our opinion. You could put any other book. If you want a book, you could put MMR in there. So you're getting the satellite dish little remnants of information to help you feel more secure about your decisions. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily that we built this so we buy a million cars. Actually, my volume is going way down. Uh, I'm only going to have 600 cars at the auction this week because our main focus is maintaining the software that other dealers are getting the benefit of. Our transparency in a dealership's showroom is helping the McGillicuddy, the customer, to actually see the premises of how we're coming up with the price. It's not any longer, uh, my used car manager is going to go out and put a price on the car. In the meantime, let's talk about you. Let's become best friends for life. I wear plaid. You wear a plaid. We're almost brothers. It's unbelievable. Oh, the used car manager's back with the price. Let me see the good news. Jump up out of the chair, walk back and, and put the cold water in the consumer's face. And they say, oh my God, that's all you're going to give me for your trade? No. Now the salesperson goes back and becomes the dealership's worst enemy. Hey, boss, no, they, they were next door and the dealer gave him 10000 more for it. Uh, what do you want me to do? You want to give them more money or you want to let them walk? Every dealer in the country's heard it ad nauseum. So by, and we built the tool to disable it, to disable that. We encourage any dealer with AccuTrade to walk with the consumer around the car, take the pictures, point out the damage, show the good things. Oh, you have a white car with 22 inch wheels. You have four sets of sunroofs and you got nine navigation systems. Wow, that's all positive. Whoops, looks like the quarter panel's been replaced. Oh, you must have a bad Carfax. See, now, what we've done is revealed the DNA details of that particular VIN. Why? That's what I want to know. Like, why did you decide to do this? It's specifically to enable fact-based communication between mm-hmm. a salesperson and a customer, between the salesperson and the manager, 
between the manager and the dealership to actually understand the facts about what their inventory is actually worth and why you made a decision to trade it for more. You're a best end user. You want to trade it for more because you definitely are going to put it in the shop and retail it. Or you're making the decision to put it in a broader marketplace, potentially with critical mass, and actually get a wholesale profit out of the car. It just feels like such an innovator's dilemma because you're, I mean, partially it's against your interest, right? You have this like proprietary data. On the other hand- It's against yeah. our interest, but it, therefore it's in our customer's interest, isn't it? If you're getting the benefit of our knowledge, our insurance policy, and you're not obligated to sell us anything, you're getting a guarantee every time you vindicate a car. But I want to address the elephant in the room, right? The elephant in the room to me is like, if you are, you've been successful in many things in life, clearly you've sold multiple companies to Cox Automotive, to cars.com. We'll, we'll get into that shortly. You've just built an empire, right? Doesn't this threaten Mannheim's dominance? If you truly are able to commoditize the vehicle and you are the brand, does this no, not no, threaten no, Mannheim no, auction? No, no, no. So tell that's more, a very- more. Interesting, a uh, very interesting point. No, I'm man. I, even though we don't get treated that way, we're their best customer in their history. We were mm-hmm. totally loyal to them. That's for a lot of different reasons. One, logistically, you could walk across the street from where our office has been since 1983, mm-hmm. and our reputation is based on what we've done inside those trading halls. It has nothing to do with Mannheim. Our reputation. It's our choice to treat our customers in a way that they get the rub off effect of having. You know, like people that sell cars that back them up. And in other words, that invites the buyer uh, into their arena with less fear. Let me more specifically answer your question. We would not be a threat. We would actually be, you would assume, their greatest ally. Because if we we use their their trading floor as the place where we convert our billion dollars a year in sales, they get the full benefit of that. For us to slide off because somebody's going to give us a different fee or, you know, what that's not what we do. We've created a, a customer base in those arenas, the arenas that we actually have always been in for many decades. I'll tell you who is the threat to Mannheim. Can I take a guess? Yeah, I want you to guess. All right. Well, I'm going to go Carvana Odessa because put their capital structure, all their debt issues aside yeah. for a second. I think they are the biggest player that I'm seeing that's blurring the lines between retail and wholesale in the car business. And that's mm-hmm. the only reason I say that. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, they have that potential. But go ahead. Who's the biggest threat? So, yeah, biggest so threat? I like, uh, so your rationality is good. First of all, they're yeah. the smartest people it, that the car industry has seen in, in a long, long time, right? Their ability to market is phenomenal. Their business model, they've pressed to the nth degree. The fact that they don't need to make profit makes it very difficult for competitors. All they got to do yes. is increase volume and everybody thinks it's going to be, you know, half.com and Google and so forth, right? All of that. But no, it, in my estimation, that is not the biggest threat. The biggest threat is, I would say, Copart. I know you're laughing at me now, right? Okay. Copart or Ritchie Brothers. And let me tell you why. So the America's Auto Options have been around for quite some time. A friend of mine actually sold the ABC auctions. Mike Hockett sold the ABC auctions to the Americas. They bought another friend of mine who unfortunately passed away last year, uh, Alexis Jacobs, Columbus Fair Auto Auction, one of the great independent auctions in the world. They actually made that acquisition. They bought the Linway Auto Auction in Boston, which it, in Boston, it's a phenomenal auction. They have unbelievable loyalty and customers and great merchandise because of the local dealers that, that sell their trades there, et cetera. So they've actually accumulated really good strategic locations around the country, but they're owned by uh, Wall Street money or venture money. Mm-hmm. They don't buy things to hold them and keep them, do they? No, they, they buy them to flip them, don't they? Mm-hmm. And they've aggregated enough auctions at this point. And some of the auctions have really good talent. One of the great auctions is, is Lancaster Marcus. It's run by Greg Gaiman, who came from 25 years of running Mannheim Auto Auction, the biggest auction in the world. He's mm-hmm. the general manager there. Great guy, unbelievably phenomenal guy, right? So they have what I would call a real gold nugget for somebody like Copart with a $45 billion market cap that really does dominate their core business, which is junk. You understand? Copart, if you look at their basics and their management, I think there's probably 10% owned by, uh, you know, the founders and so forth. 
They're in a position because of their locations everywhere. And they've tried a couple of times to get in the whole car business, but failed miserably for a lot of different reasons, right? Uh, but they have their own software. They have a huge customer base, massive customer base. They're in a position to buy America's auto auctions and immediately be in the whole car business. That, if I was Cox or Manheim, I would be peeing in my underwear about. You follow me? Because with their locations and with the whole car business and with their, I would call it their capability, um, that would be a threat. And I believe it would be a threat extraordinary to any of these other little marketplaces that have popped up and are running around and doing whatever they do with inspectors and all the rest of it. But what I, do you think the threat is here? You're a fan of Elon Musk, one of the smartest guys, in my opinion, you like him or not like him, he's the smartest guy you ever think because he's an asymmetrical thinking dude. And yeah. typically when he's asymmetrical talking, when you actually boil it out, what he's saying is true. What did he do, you know, like six or eight months ago? When everybody's shooting their mouth off Ford, General slash, Motors. Everybody. Slash the prices of his cars. Listen, listen, he didn't have to ask nobody. He don't have a board of directors who's going to piss and moan and carry on and so forth. The guy woke up one day and says, okay, I'm sorry. We're just going to chop the price by X amount of money. What happened? Stock flew. It was down to, what, 110 bucks or something? And when he did it, what did he do? He upset everybody's apple cart. You know why he could do it? He didn't have to listen to nobody. He didn't have to ask permission. The cat is a wild man on steroids and just does. And then when you think about why and how he did it, that sends a shockwave, in my estimation, through the traditional giant corporations with legacy overhead and legacy operational issues, board of directors that can't do it. You got to ask them 42 times, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They can't just get up one morning and sla slash the prices 22%. They can't do that. He can. Mm -hmm. And he's going to do it again. Anytime anybody starts making headway, he'll do it again with no problem. And you know what's going to happen? Stocks are going to go 300 from 200 because he's able to do that. He's agile enough to do that. So in the in the case of what we're talking about, and I'm just using these words. I don't have no inside information about this, right? Just looks to me like America's is getting lined up to be you know, a potential acquisition. As a matter of fact, you just had a guy on your show. I listened to it the other day, uh, the Hague Partners. If I was him, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be talking to them folks right now, man. Try to make a little deal. Mm -hmm. Not that they they need a deal to be made, but my feeling is Americas is going to get uh, bought by. It's not going to get bought by Desi. It ain't going to get bought by Car. It ain't going to get bought by Manheim. It's going to get by Asymmetrical. Now, the other possibility, in my estimation, is Ritchie Brothers. Ritchie Brothers is the king, the king of heavy equipment. These people are unbelievably smart and well run. And they dominate the heavy equipment business worldwide. They do auctions. But you know what they do differently? They do exactly what we do in an auction. They own the merchandise. Now, owning the merchandise means you have a, a much better probability of making customers happy, of actually selling every piece that you have on the auction block. And more importantly, understanding the value of every piece that you bought to put on the auction block. And what that does is it makes the their marketplace multiples more efficient. They own the merch. Mm -hmm. If they got in the space and actually own the merch that's gone through the auction block, mm -hmm. the world has changed as we know. Why? It. But that, that's what Auctions that's what I want to Are risk adverse? Their fee yes. forward. They they're happy to keep charging more. Everybody's screaming. They don't have it all. Therefore, they keep yes. smashing you. You see, if you own the merch. You don't have to charge fees. More importantly, you're absolutely guaranteeing, first of all, the condition board's perfect. Because if it's not the person that bought it, doesn't have to take it. More importantly, every single car, you know who you're buying it from. You know who did the condition board. What would you do if you were Manheim Auto Auction, biggest auction in the world? You're in the boardroom, right? You're a fly on the wall, or maybe you're not yep. a fly on the wall. Maybe you're the chairman, whatever. Yep. What would you do if you were there, if you were manager? Boy, oh boy, I loved your questions. I know why your show is so popular. You ask good questions. <laughs> First of all, certain board of directors are run by consensus. That I would add in a day. Because consensus forces bad decisions. When everybody has to agree to something and nobody oh, with a brain. No doubt about it. it. So I would end that. And here's what I would do. I would take from experience what works best. The only reason some of these online auctions currently even exist is because of Mannheim's obtuse understanding of what a dealer doesn't want 
and charging too much for what they do want. Mm-hmm. I would do a Elon Musk. You see that? I'd chop the fee. I'd chop. I, I'd knock the piss out of the fees to the wow. point where, oh, Jesus, we can't do that. We won't make our quarterly, bleh, and it, you know, it, our profit. Wow. Here, here, let me tell you another thing that I can tell you from experience. When you ask too little, you know how much you get? You get too much. When you ask too much, you know what you get? You get gatsalagul, you, you get nothing. You follow that? When yeah. you ask too little, you invite everybody in. And therefore, critical mass takes over, don't it? Testosterone takes over, don't it? They're definitely inviting competition right now, I can tell they, you that. They forced their own competition by obtuse arrogance, in my estimation, no criticism. I love everybody in the world. Yeah. But as an outsider and tried screaming many, many, many times, which, of course, just being a dog outsider, you know, their best customer, nobody's paying attention. Nobody even think of having a f- conversation. Once we made our deal, that was the end of the conversation. We don't know anything and nobody knows nothing about yeah. nothing. And therefore, that's OK. It's no problem. I don't I don't feel like a scorned wife or something. Right. But but I got to be perfectly frank with you. Like I'm watching a train wreck in slow motion opening the door up to half knucklehead marketplaces that have no reason on earth to exist. If an auction was smart, they would use an application that actually created a conditional report and a guaranteed price before the dealer traded the car to enable the dealer to make the choice to take a check and listen careful to me and ride along to the net result. It's what I called wholesale holdback. Give the dealer what we're saying the insurance value is, but enable them to travel to the net result. If somebody, I can't tell you the hundreds of thousands of dealers that have asked me to sell cars for them. I don't represent other people's cars. I only sell what I own. I wrote a check and now I'm selling that. You follow me? I'm not selling somebody else's car that has all kinds of crazy things hidden underneath it. You're not going to find out until your customer gets home. Bought it from you with your reputation and now find some crazy shit in the back of the car. I ain't doing that, right? So think about this. Dealer appraises the car with the tool set, which includes a condition report and an OBD, so we know what's broken, what's not broken. So theoretically, you're now trading the car for what it's worth. When the dealer decides to keep the car or not keep the car, that car can be pushed to an auction with a guaranteed price. And we're going to put it in critical mass arrangement and sell it to the best end user with all the other theories we've talked about to be sure that we get ultimate commoditized value for that VIN on that day in that particular marketplace, you see? So now a dealer don't have to worry about wholesaling cars because they got the ability to take the insurance policy, you see, push that car to an auction. That then gets put into our critical critical mass machine where everybody, the right people are watching that car when it hits the auction block. And 100% of the time, that the net result goes into the dealer's dividend account. So the management system that we own enables the dealer to say, we pushed 37 cars into the wholesale holdback this week after we traded them, we didn't want them, and we pushed them to the marketplace. On those 37 cars, we have a dividend due us, which you could take it today or next week or next month, of $53,000. That's the difference between what we paid for the car and what we sold the car for minus cost transportation, reconditioning, et cetera. Now, could you explain to me, in that case, we really would have completely emasculated the concept of there ever being a wholesaler again in the world. We just created the dial-up telephone identity of a wholesaler. Never going to ever be another read for it. What would you do it for? The software is enabling you to trade the car for what it's worth with an insurance policy. Mm-hmm. You now make the right rational decision if you want to disperse that car right now, get a check up front and put that car into critical mass arrangement on an auction block and have that sold within the next five days. You see what I'm saying, Dave? What could possibly be more efficient than that? It's physically impossible. We're actually at a point where you're going to be able to ask Siri, Siri, um, what's my car worth? Good afternoon. Are you talking about the LX470 or the S550? The S550. Could you please update your miles? The miles are 32,700. The current Cash value of your car is $47,400 to sell. Would you like to trade that car? Yes. What kind of car would you like to buy? Another Mercedes. Would you like the directions to? That's where we're at right now with the software development. This is not something coming soon. You dig it? What that really means is 
we're taking all of the elements. It, it's actually getting worse than that. I hate to say this because there's probably salespeople who are going to be listening to this. The last person on earth when I somebody said, well, we're going to value cars using AI. It couldn't be anything more comical to me in the history of the world. That doesn't mean we don't take data points from AI. It means that you're never going to take the element of the last trader out of deciding what that car is actually worth and what you'd really write a check for. But I'm going to take this one step further. Mm -hmm. Salespeople are in a world of trouble. You hear that? Why? Salespeople, they're in deep poop with a wave coming, brother. Because every question that you load into AI with a competent answer, and when you load 82 million questions about a whatever happened in a showroom, whatever happened in a car sale into AI, and someone asks that question, you know what happens, right? Take a wild guess. They get the right answer back. They don't get a wise-ass answer. They don't get an attitude answer. They don't get a trick answer. They're getting the answer back that a salesperson interaction with a consumer right now. How many people like going to a car dealer and shopping for a car and saying it's a great experience? What's the statistics say? It ain't that good, right? And no. Most dealer, most consumers are dealer uh, regressive. Most are dealer regressive because the experience could have been better, et cetera, et cetera. I believe AI will have a deep impact on that all the way to, you know, when you're shopping online. But I think for a while, the salesperson role has, has materially changed. It's, I mean, it's, and it's going to morph. Yeah. It's going to morph. That's my feeling. It's going to morph. Not everybody's going to buy into it. But, I, th but I, I think that's emblematic of a bigger thing in the economy in general, which is that anything that can be automated will be automated. Transactional roles will be eliminated and people will be left doing, you know, their options will be more creative roles or, that, you know, stuff I, that- I believe that 100%. Yes. But it's just like a dial-up phone. It's not coming back. We're moving down a pathway that is going to be what you might not even be comfortable for people. We're just going in a different direction altogether. I think it also goes to what we're talking about with you know the future of the icon auction houses and how certain software will become less relevant to the point of being irrelevant and how other things that are coming to the market will dominate, if I'm not mistaken. It all boils down to transparency, the ability to trust whatever you're doing and having it completely accessible at any given time. I believe all of those things to be true. And let me ask you, why haven't any of the online auctions taken off? And you just obviously spoke about a very good point, which is, you know, taking skin in the game or having ownership in the vehicles. Um, but what, like, do you believe that physical, physical footprint is still integral for, you know, the next auction or kind of the future up and coming auction? Or do you think that that hybrid, has hybrid. We're not all hybrid. electric. We're hybrid. In other words, we're not gas. We don't want ice cars. We don't want electric cars. We want hybrid because it also has something to do with category of car. You're talking about a $4,000 car? You're talking about a $400,000 car. You're talking mm -hmm. about a wreck? You're talking about a whole car. So the hybrid also breaks down the categories of cars. So there's not one size fits all. Next. So you asked the question about why these online auctions. Well, let me tell you something. Simulcast not only took off, it dominates, brother. It's probably not the best software. But believe me when I tell you, we were real early converters. Well, we were converting 60%, 70% when dealers were converting 5%. Trust, mm -hmm. critical mass. In other words, all the reasons why we were way ahead of other dealers converting on simulcast. Right? Today, we do 92 or 6% of our cars online. And we do sell CarMax a few cars in the lane or a couple other little dealers that have the inclination to sit there and do whatever they do, touch cars, et cetera, right? Now, why other online versions of Marketplace have their model doesn't work. So if you're going to send a, that's not a criticism. I love everybody and we do business with everybody, but the model can't scale. You can't spit fast enough to make it work. You're sending inspectors out to actually go to a place where they may or may not sell a car. You're paying gas, insurance, toll, it, it, you know, everything to go with it. They do an inspection. And in other words, now they actually sell a car and they're going to make a deal with you to sell it for less because they want to get your business. What does it, what does each one of those inspections cost? And they're selling at 20 or 30 or 40% is success rate. That means a whole bunch of them are going, those, those inspections that might've cost you $150 to do. And therefore sure. the software that enables what I believe, you know, right on the window of the car, the original condition report, the software enables the person appraising the car to be this, the condition report writer.
So mm-hmm. our tool enables the person looking at the car to take the pictures, to show the dent, to put the thing in, to put the option in. And that becomes the condition report. If you've ever seen our tool, our condition report is next generation. It includes an OBD and what's wrong with that car instantly. It doesn't take five or 10 or 15 minutes. In, in a matter of two minutes, you have a full and absolute guaranteed condition report. If these online auctions were, I don't believe they're going to have the capacity to do it, but if they were to use a platform that actually enables the person appraising the card to be the condition report writer. Let me ask you a question. You're putting out a lot of super interesting ideas. What are you working on right now? I know you're not sitting still. You're, you're, you're way too active. You have that drive in you. Do me a favor. Right. Do me a favor over here, right? I ain't telling my wife that I'm on this thing. And I hope yeah. that Christ, none of her friends hear about it, right? Because... I'm not young. I've been doing this a long time. And I don't need to be doing this because I do got a couple shekels in the bank. You dig it? We do it to win. We do it because it's possible. That's the reason we're doing this. And my wife don't understand it. She don't. Why are you asking a You can't. We just sold $28 million worth of cars, honey. Do you mind if I take it easy for four seconds? Yeah, but what are you doing this for? So, and I don't. What's your, what's your net worth? It's none of your business, but it ain't even <laughs> close to being. Listen, you ain't. I'm going to go with that. 500 million, 500 million. It ain't even close. But in the meantime, it ain't nothing. I can tell you that, right? right? I'm going to give you another. You're asking a question what we're working on. So we made a little deal with the folks at cars.com. And as a result, we're still in the process of distribution of the basic tool to dealer groups, to dealers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So my next maneuver, obviously, mm-hmm. is. After we have sufficient distribution is to enable marketplaces. I believe our tool would enable the online marketplaces that I've referred to, to thrive, no matter which one of the three or four they are. If they used our tool, they don't have to pay for inspectors. They actually start their auction with a guaranteed price up front. And arbitration is all taken care of through the app. My theory would be the marketplaces would be smart enough to enable the dealer to choose the marketplace they want to arbitrage their car. So n- name any one of the three or four or five marketplaces that the ins- the official condition report is the one the dealer's guaranteeing, which I underwrite the guarantee with the first bid. The only reason they push it to someone else's marketplace is to get more, not to get less. They already know what they got. The question is, can that next marketplace get them 1,000, 2,000, 4,000 more? So it's a self-made marketplace that we don't want to tell the dealer, you can't use this market. You can't, you're going to use our market. You can't use nobody else's. If we could get the powers to be to enable the condition report that's produced by AccuTrade to be used in any marketplace, the dealer then has the option of pushing to the one that they feel comfortable selling their cars on. All right. So a couple of questions. Number one, why did you sell the cars.com? Was it distribution play? Was that what you're looking for? So after we got done our, uh, let's call it our non-compete with Cox, and mm-hmm. we bought Galves and had to move our development to Canada because I had a two-year non-compete, um, there was a couple other opportunities that we were working through and due diligence went one way or another with, and I won't bring up who they were with, but they're obviously very well-known players. Mm-hmm. And management changed there, so the whole thing it becomes a little weird. And uh, I was running out of patience. Meantime, I never really had, we were always diametrically opposed as, you know, Cox order trader to cars.com. So I never really had a relationship with Alex Vetter or their team. And once we actually started talking, it seemed like it was kind of a natural thing uh, uh, for AccuTrade to be absorbed in their group of, of products, dealer, inspire, um, you know, different things. It seemed like very logical things. Go one of the, uh, the, the tools in AccuTrade is value your trade, right? So Dealer Inspire has 6,000 dealers, whatever the number is. Seems like a natural distribution point. Would you agree? Wait, dealer, only dealers value your trade or you're also referring to consumers? Because I'm, I'm just trying to think oh, about no, like- 100%, 100% facing a consumer. Value yeah. your or get an instant cash offer. Go in through yeah. the process. Tell us the best you can. And in other words, that lead goes to a dealer that actually theoretically is a buyer for that car. And if for some reason they don't want the car, the dumb Irishman's there with a check, me. So in other words, I'm guaranteeing every one of those leads to every dealer in the country. 
um, obviously that gives them the intestinal fortitude typically to keep the car. If I'm willing to buy it, right? Well, geez, I, it must be worth that much. I'm going to keep it and retail it. And that's basically what typically happens. So, now, so what does the technological landscape look like in five to 10 years, right? As a dealer, let's just go 10 years out for a second. Do you see this envision this like seamless marketplace where it's completely online and the dealers are themselves doing conditional reporting on these vehicles and transacting online? So that's really a broad question. And I would say if we're going to do a nutshell answer, I would say without any question or doubt, a version of what you just said is definitely happening, brother. Whether I'm capable of it, making it happen or not, a dealer will absolutely walk to a car, VIN decode it, plug in an OBD, right? Take the pictures and theoretically have the option to push it to a critical mass arranged group of buyers that buy that category of car. So while the car is still warm, the car that bitch ain't cooled off yet, right? You are now in front of 63 buyers within a geographic area for transportation, logistics issues, et cetera, that have the ability to push that car. If we're saying traded for 72,000 and we find a better buyer at 76,000, what's the chance the dealer don't take that money? Access to the player, the buyer and the seller is the only thing that's necessary. And then creating a, a marketplace to enable anyone, I don't care who it is, to use an application that's guaranteed, by the way, that's verifiable, data infused up the gazoo, to be able to push it into a marketplace that would make bring a trailer or some other, some other V something marketplace, kindergarten, pure kindergarten. The only mm -hmm. thing that's missing is one really simple thing. It's who's going to do title, check, and finance. And that's mm -hmm. the easiest thing in the history of the world. All of these auctions, when you say what's next for auctions, they will become, not all of them, but some will become the purveyor of a title, you know, making sure the title's transfer Operations. usable. Operations. That's, that, that's exactly right, Daddy-O. What, title? Making sure that check bounced. It didn't bounce and somebody got their money because I sold it. I mm -hmm. traded it two minutes ago with a title. I pushed it through a marketplace and that just sold right this minute. It happened the same minute. We didn't wait. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I got the title. I want to know where my check's at, brother. For that, you take the technology, do... you latch on yeah. the distribution, yeah. and you acquire, yeah. you acquire yeah. the operations. Yeah. 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 And we have cell phones. In other words, there is no more <laughs> dial up phone. In other words, the pay, the pay phone that we knew every pay phone because the beeper went off. And we had a call, Vidian Dodge, to give him a price on a car. That shit's all over, brother, and it ain't coming back. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. By the way, I saw I saw somebody had asked a question because I, I, obviously people, you know, look at different people's profiles on Facebook, right? And I'm always posting my gardens as my psychiatrist, right? I saw that. I saw that. And, and a couple <laughs> people asked what my favorite flower is, just to give them the understanding. It's a gardenia, brother. Gardenia is absolutely 100% my favorite flower. There you go. Yeah. Give the audience what they want. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Dude, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, any closing thoughts before we wrap up? No, no, I'm very happy and proud of what you did. I have no reason to take pride, but I take pride in people that are in our industry to actually think a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Very few people think differently. Everybody can follow the other one, right? But I love asymmetrical thought. I love it. It actually mm -hmm. is exhilarating to me. And it's rare. It's really mm -hmm. rare. Appreciate you, brother. All right, doctor. All right. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating. Consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.